Live from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Our prayer this evening will be given by our sister and friend, Josephine, RJR's wife. Let's close our eyes. Heavenly Father, we want to glorify you. We want to praise you. The most powerful verse you had for us today, Romans 8, 28. And we all know that everything works together for good for those who love God. And with the love that you had for us, Lord God, please heal our heart, heal our mind, and heal our soul. And with that love, we can do all things according to your will. This we ask in the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Josephine. Love you. What a beautiful prayer. Josephine comes, uh, came from the Philippines, and just it's so beautiful to see the different ways that we, we approach God and how beautiful that was. And she cited a scripture uh, there. I thought it was just wonderful. Thanks, Josephine. Three things, maybe four. First, we want to announce uh, to all of you that beginning Tuesday, January 5th, uh, 2016, the ministry is going to be airing a new program. Uh, right before Heart of the Matter. So we're going to stream out to you a half an hour before 7.30 Mountain Time in the U.S. And wherever you are, just work around that to start a half an hour earlier. It's called Breaking Bread, and it's with a uh, host all the way from Georgia, Warren Puckett. Now, uh, Warren and his uh, wife, former Latter-day Saints, who have come to understand the grace of God, a beautiful testimony, half hour long, again, 7.30 Mountain Time PM, right before Heart of the Matter, beginning Tuesday night, January uh, 5th. So uh, let me introduce to you Brother Warren, who's hosting that show. And let's just talk for a second, have a seat. This is Brother Warren Puckett, and uh, we're getting some shows in the can, as it were. And tell the audience what Breaking Bread is all about. Well, Breaking Bread is going to be a show where I'm going to discuss... Jesus and what who we are in Jesus and the power of a relationship that we have with him and uh, that empowerment that we get with that relationship uh, I think we totally underestimate as Christians and those who are not uh, we underestimate that power and who we are in Jesus and so I just want to focus on the Lord Sean and, and, and talk about him because he literally transformed my life and I know that uh, He'll transform anybody's life, you know. Just accept Him, invite Him into your life, and receive Him, and uh, just watch the miracles and the supernatural power of God uh, take place. A couple of interesting things. Uh, we did one of the tapings tonight uh, prior to uh, this live show, and, uh, and Warren uh, does a wonderful job. And a couple things. Warren is um, probably more charismatic than I have ever been, but I think it's wonderful because there are very charismatic people who love the Lord and he's going to be able to bring that flavor to uh, the ministry and sharing. And additionally, in the show, and if I can quote this, uh, which you'll be able to see in January 5th, Tuesday night, 7.30 Mountain, uh, Warren said this quote, if, if I'm paraphrasing, I don't really care or I don't think it matters what church you go to. You, did you say that? I think I said, I don't think God cares. Yeah, whoa. <laughs> so what, 
and and I, I, I might love get in that. trouble for that. But. I love that. What what's uh, what do you mean by that? <clears throat> I don't. I believe when God uh, is moving on you, I, it could be in a Catholic church, a Methodist church, a bar. I don't. I don't think it matters. I, I think it's the relationship. It's it's the interaction between you and the Lord. Uh, and where it happens, in what building, what church, what denomination. I don't think God cares. I think we make more of an issue of it than he does. But, I think you're you right. Know, I don't know. Yeah, I think he's right. Look forward to it. Uh, he's going to do it throughout the next, well, God willing, number of decades. So we're going to be putting more and more breaking bread right before Heart of the Matter starting Tuesday, January 5th, 2016. Thanks, my brother. Thank you. Okay, uh, additionally, we promised people last Christmas, sorry, uh, that if they ordered the holiday special, they would get a, the, the next book that we print free. Uh, it's almost ready. It's called Knife to a Gunfight. It's one of my favorite books that we've produced so far. Uh, now, in the interim, we produced a book called It's Not the End of the World. That's available for free to people by going to www.hotm.tv. That's a free book. But we are going to uh, make this, uh, make good on our promise to people who ordered the holiday special last year and finally get this book, Knife to a Gunfight, out to you within the next probably eight weeks. Uh, but you will get it in the mail. We haven't forgotten you, and we really appreciate your patience. We think it will be worth it. Finally, uh, don't usually talk about films or recommend movies here, but uh, it's kind of a subjective thing. But I saw one the other night with my uh, family, Spotlight, and I recommend it to all adults to take a minute and go see it. For years, this ministry has cried and complained about the evils of institutional religion, and this film gives some real examples and insights into why this is. So even if you don't see the movie, do yourself do your families a favor and walk away from any religion where a man or a woman inserts itself or themselves between you and God. Uh, don't give them your allegiance. Uh, refuse their leadership and counsel and demands um, that are supposedly coming from God's mouth to their ear for them to tell you. Uh, but don't throw God out. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't throw God away because you find out that religion stinks so badly. The reason all believers can reject institutional faith and intermediaries is because God sent his son. He sent his son to be that intermediary. And that's all you need. You don't need anybody else. So if we have the spirit with us inside, why on earth would we need anybody else telling us what to do, how to think, how to believe, let the spirit guide through Christ Jesus. Go see Spotlight. It represents a lot that's wrong with institutional religion. And I thought it was pretty well made. Anyway, I was talking with my two daughters the other week uh, about thought-killing cliches that come up. I am guilty, guilty, guilty in my life of using them. And uh, they're very convenient. We use them so that we can just kind of compartmentalize people, put them in a category, and not have to worry about them anymore. Jim, oh, he's gay. So automatically, we have Jim sequestered in the gay box. Uh, doesn't matter if Jim cares for his mom or volunteers at the shelter or that he loves God. Jim is gay and it's enough to kill Jim in the heart of some people. Mike, he's an ex-con. Cindy, she had an abortion. Tom, he's a liberal. Uh, Grant, he's a conservative. Uh, 
been married five times, been married three times, never been married. We compartmentalize people, and when we use these cliches, uh, they make life easier, they keep conversation fluid, but truly serve kind of cold-hearted injustice upon people. And I think it's why Jesus said, let your, let your speech be yes and no, because everything else becomes evil after that. Uh, the LDS use thought-killing cliches among their meetings and in their members. If someone has a difficult question that they bring up, the LDS will say, is that important to your salvation? And so the person who asks the hard question feels dumb and, oh man, maybe I shouldn't. And uh, the word apostate is big in the LDS church. The word anti-Mormon is big in the LDS church. But Christians are just as guilty. Uh, instead of apostate, Christians love the term heretic. That's heresy. He's a heretic. Step into a room of 100 Christians and have someone announce, Bill is a heretic, and 99% of them are going to forever view Bill with suspicion in their heart forevermore. Cult is another big one that we use. Cult leader. One of the most difficult things about being in ministry could be being misunderstood. Instead of explaining, for instance, our eschatological stance, brothers and sisters will say to each other, McCraney believes Jesus has already returned, and boom, that's it. There's no, there's no couching, there's no setting it up. It's just McCraney thinks Jesus has returned, and so then McCraney's dead. Uh, instead of saying McCraney is a committed monotheist, who believes that Jesus is God in the flesh, they say, McCraney rejects the Trinity. Boom! Rejects it. No more McCraney. You're done, you know? Uh, Instead of talking about the hours of information we present on hell and what the Bible really says about it, in the Greek, they say, McCraney doesn't believe in hell. Thought-killing cliche. list goes on and on. So, I think Paul said, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. I need to work on that too. But it, it just came to me as we talked about thought-killing cliches that we use in secular life and in spiritual life, how bad they can be. And being guilty, I hope I can, I can stop. Okay, this past month, we sent out a newsletter to a lot of people. And in that newsletter, I um, was explaining our approach to uh, the Mormon uh, subject by mixing Christianity in there and by what we said in the newsletter is, hey, there's a lot of things that the two groups have in common and there's things that are good about both sides and there's things that are bad from both sides and we're trying to sift through it all and show what, is, what can be shared and what can be dis discarded. Well, I got an email and it said this, after reading your last newsletter, I have to respond. Let's get to the point of your newsletter. There is no likeness between the Mormon faith and the Christian faith. The Mormons depend on works to get them to their planet, and the Christian looks to the cross where Jesus shed his precious blood. He quotes Hebrews 9.22, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The Mormon faith is built on a counterfeit Jesus. Joseph Smith was a false prophet straight from the pit of hell. Joseph, or whoever wrote the Book of Mormon, must have been smoking dope to think up all those lies inside that book. The book has demonic powers, period. I'm guilty of ripping up many Mormon Bibles, period. I hate anything that's false. You never see a cross on a Mormon temple, do you? Satan has the Mormon followers duped. It is very sad to see people so deceived. 
thinking they're going to a planet of utter bliss, when in reality, they're on the broad road of destruction. The last thing I want to say about the Mormon church is it's a cult, plain and simple. Okay? So, now, I know this person. He didn't include his last name, but I know who he is. And he really does step out and speak about everything wrong with Mormonism. Well, I just want to quickly go through these comments and show you how wrong he is. Let's just take each line. He says, first, there is no likeness between the Mormon faith and the Christian faith. Um, none. Don't the LDS believe that there is a God? Uh, don't they believe that there was a man named Jesus who was born, who was the Son of God, who died on a cross? Do they believe in the Holy Spirit? Don't the LDS pray? Don't they believe that you should try to live a good life? Uh, don't the LDS believe in an afterlife? Don't they practice water baptism in Jesus' name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? I mean, come on, David. This, this is just hyperbole. It does nothing to help the, the problem. No, all it does is make you look dumb. Because in, in, in reality, it's just hyperbole. And it's not really true. And then he says, the Mormons depend on works to get them to their planet. And the Christian looks to the cross where Jesus shed his precious blood. I think when it comes to Mormonism, I probably know about as much as you do, David. Probably. And while I don't agree with the LDS views on what saves a person and admit that in the end religion t tends to lead to bondage, your assessment here that the Mormons depend on works to get them to their planet and the Christians look to the cross where Jesus shed his blood is unfair and it's untrue. The LDS claim that Jesus shed his blood and it's necessary for their salvation. They do. They teach that. Um, they sing in their sacrament meetings, as often as things can be, upon the cross of Calvary. They sing that song. They crucified our Lord. When you make a statement like that, that they, they, they don't believe in the precious shed blood of Jesus, you're wrong. And to make a statement like that automatically takes them and says, no one understands us. You know, you don't get us at all. Um, by citing Hebrews 9.22, David really blows it. I'm not going to go into that. He goes on and says, the Mormon faith is built on a counterfeit Jesus. The question I have for David is, who has the real deal Jesus downright? Because David, if you have a few things off about your Jesus, then he's a counterfeit too. You, I mean, if you got him down perfectly, you know, his eye color and his hair color and everything that he was like, David, then you've got him down exactly right. But if a, if a dollar bill has a few things off from the real McCoy, it's a counterfeit. So unless you're 100% right on your Jesus, David, you have a counterfeit too. Do you get it? So, I mean, it's a big, vast statement. I know the differences and I know what's taught and we can discuss them. But just to blanketly say they have a counterfeit Jesus it's just, it's so bold. I'm not sure you can say it. And then he says, um, Joseph Smith was a false prophet straight from the pit of hell. All right. Well, first of all, unless Joseph was the Antichrist, I don't think it's possible for him to come from a preexistent pit of hell. So you're, even, your, even your description, how could he have come from the pit of hell if we don't believe in a preexistence as Christians? So, you know, it's just this kind of verbiage. And then he says, the Book of Mormon, uh, Joseph, who wrote the Book of Mormon, must have been smoking dope to think up all those lies inside that book. Are we talking about the fiction of the book or the doctrine? Because if you're talking doctrine, when you say all those lies, 
there's really not many things that are against uh, biblical doctrine in the Book of Mormon, David. There's not a bunch of lies in the Book of Mormon. If you're talking about it, how they claim it's history, maybe you can say that's fictional. But, and smoking dope. So I guess Tolkien smoked dope, and I guess anybody else who had a creative mind smoked dope. So it's, I'm just trying to show you all this rhetoric that you throw out here that sounds so strong and supportive really isn't. He says, I am guilty of ripping up many Mormon Bibles. So you're ripping up the King James Version of the Bible because that's what the Mormon's Bible is, David. The Book of Mormon is not their Bible. Uh, God, I hate anything that's false, he says. And yet most of your emails false, David. So I'm bringing this out so that we can try to open up another type of dialogue, which is what our newsletter was talking about. And I hope that gets through the point. And with that, how about a moment from the word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. We've been going through uh, the Bible and taking different books and just pulling out the best scriptures that kind of support a subjective Christianity. And we're here in James tonight. Uh, I have been taught before that God must balance mercy and justice equally, that God cannot have his mercy override justice. I was taught that. But according to James 2.13, that's not true. It says, for he shall have judgment without mercy, and he has showed no mercy and mercy rejoices against judgment. Other translations put that line this way, mercy triumphs over justice or mercy glories over justice. In other words, God does allow his mercy to overwhelm the demands of justice and to extend that mercy to people when we don't deserve it. Uh, and then one of the major points of subjected Christianity is that our relationship with God is between ourselves and that we should hold our tongues in the way other people do it and how they live. James 4, 12, uh, 11, 12 affirms this same, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaketh evil of the law and judges the law. But if thou judge the law, art thou not a doer of the law but a judge? There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy who art thou that judges another? The whole thing about it is people are going to believe what they want to believe. You can teach truth. You can share truth. You can believe your truths are better than their truths. But shut your mouth. Leave them alone. If they're claiming Jesus, if they're not claiming Jesus, you share the truth. You let them decide how they're going to do it. And you love. Um, I'm going to skip that. Let's go to, finally, James 4.17, which says, this is a great uh, passage on Christian subjectivity. Therefore, to him, to him or her, to him or her, that knows to do good, but doeth it not, to him it is sin. That's a really subjective passage. If you, the individual, knows something is good to do and doesn't do it, that is sin. Under the law, it was, if you do this that you know is bad, that is sin. With Christ having wiped away all the bad and the sin gone, James twists it and he says, now if you know to do good and you don't do it, to him it is sin. But you notice it's to him, to him, and you get to decide what you think is good by virtue of the Holy Spirit, and if you don't do it, you're accountable to God for what you knew to be good and refused to do. 
One more thing before we get to our message tonight. There's been all sorts of fallout from the decision of the LDS leadership to uh, refuse to bless and baptize children in same-sex marriage. Because of the counselor speech, I didn't really give it much time or thought. Had some critical emails about how I overlooked that. And so I just want to summarize really quickly. The first thing with this decision uh, that the LDS are accomplishing on purpose is they're getting exactly, in my opinion, what they want to get out of this, to get rid of the liberal riffraff presently in the church today who fights against doctrine, who fights for same-sex marriage, gender role, equality, all this stuff. It's just so easy to get rid of what they would consider riffraff by making an announcement like that. On the outside looking in, sometimes we might think they're just a bunch of crotchety old men who aren't keeping up with the times. Let me tell you, these guys are in touch with the ways of the world. They know exactly what every word is going to do. So they... Remember, Mormonism is all about the power and creating of a master race of good people, wholesome people who rise up the ranks of goodness. No matter what they say, Mormonism is not in the end about catering to the weak and the lost and the addicted and the needy and the sinful as it is in biblical Christianity. In Mormonism, it's all about getting people to conform to their standards and rise up the ladder to greatness, to godhood, whatever. So, uh, it will help. Mormonism does help the needy and the poor and things, but only as long as the lost and weak and needy and poor do not affect their long-term strength and goals and their ability to dominate. If it starts to go that way, they will quickly pull back and realign. So when you think about it, this, what the LDS did was they said, hmm, in my opinion, what is the biggest drain on our resources? What's really draining on our time? Who's really causing the most problem? And they say, well, is it our conservative, right-wing, employed, white-collared, tithe-paying, temple-going members? No. Who is it? Hmm, maybe it's kind of the liberal, pro-gay, pro-this, oh, we're being too strict, this and that. How do we get rid of them? Let's say we won't, bat we won't baptize the children of gays. Well, we make that announcement, that clears the house. There's an article in uh, the Deseret News that someone gave to me, Danny, I think, gave to me uh, the other day. And it says, this is what it shows, after they made the announcement, protesters, mostly inactive Mormons, it says, resign in mass from the LDS church. Like, like they care. If you're inactive and you're not up there doing it, I don't think they care. I think it's just like cleansing house. So to me, I think it was uh, getting rid of the biggest drag of, on, the, uh, on the ward resources, the bishop's time, problems with people questioning doctrine. You're not going to get that from the, from the real stalwart usually. So I think that was it. And uh, secondly, and we said this before, any religion that will withhold mandated rites and rit rituals withhold them from children and teenagers and everything up until 18 proves that the institution cares more about survival and inner strength than it does about the needs of the most needy people. And uh, again, this is the opposite of true Christianity. My friend Reed, uh, he's very aphoristic. I've mentioned this before on the show about the aphoristic Reed. And he says, he calls me on the phone, leaves a message. You know where it says, the article faces, we believe that mankind will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. Well, it ought to be changed to say, we believe that mankind will be punished for their own sins and for the sins of their gay parents and not for Adam's transgression. And that's a really good point. Uh, 
I, I, I mean, and then finally, the, the whole bloody freaking mess with homosexuals and gays and blah, 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 is that Christianity, all forms of Christianity, is not to be focused on the sins of people. It's focused on the solution to the sins of people. It's, we are never going to eradicate sin from this earth, no matter what kind. I guarantee that every single person on earth who points a finger at a homosexual has sin in their life. They have no right to point a finger at any homosexual so long as there's sin in their life. They can't say, well, my sin's not as... They can't say that. It's bull. And so it's not hyperbole. It's what Jesus taught. The point of Christianity is someone came to save us in and from our sin. That's the point of it. It is not to rectify, correct, mandate, charge, hurt other people who are caught in their specific sin because yours isn't so apparent. So uh, while the LDS are making asinine rules to clear their own house, the evangelicals aren't much better. They're, they're probably applauding this decision. And yeah, yeah, we're going to get rid of it. I mean, it's just so lost. All right, let's move on. Back to October 6th. Derek, how much time? 30. 30. Let's open up the phone lines, 590-8413, 590-8413, if we get any calls. But this is important. Back on October 6th, we started comparing and contrasting the good, the bad, the ugly found in Mormonism and in evangelical Christianity uh, on the makeup of God, okay? And we said that the LDS descriptions of God are best defined as henotheistic. He's the only God with which we have, but there's some others. And with polytheistic overtime, overtones, there's some others. And that the evangelicals' descriptions of God include several the Trinitarian view, the modalist views, which there's several different types, and the Unitarian view. Uh, do you remember? If not, go back to the archives. In the last show before we got sidetracked by Kunstler, I said that as a means to really understand the development of LDS ideas on the makeup of God, we have to examine the first vision claims. The first vision is the story that the LDS tell about Joseph Smith, their founder, going to a grove of trees to ask God a question that should never have been asked. He says, what church should I join? What's the true church? Well, there is no true church. The church is made up of people, not brick and mortar. But he says, which is the true church? But before we can examine these visions and how they play a part in LDS ontology of God, there's one area I want to address relative to Christian views on the makeup of God. And some of you who are familiar with the ministry have heard me talk about this before, but I want to do this because Christians can be so damn smug about them thinking that they have the makeup of God so down that they can cite it and recite it and say, this is how it works and your versions are wrong and bad, etc., etc. In chapter 4 of 1 Peter, verse 11, Peter says, we ought to be hospitable to all that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's a hierarchy there. First, that God, that's Yahweh, may be glorified. Second, through Jesus Christ, God became flesh, the man. And third, while not stating it's implied, by us. We are here doing this. We glorify Christ. Christ glorifies the Father. That hierarchy, that chronology is all through the New Testament. We look to Christ, who is our mediator. 
He, God in the flesh, reconciled us. He did something we couldn't do. He looked to God. He looked to the Father and obeyed him perfectly. We looked to Christ. Christ looked to the Father. That's the hierarchy. Actually, there's one more step. Wives look to husbands. Husbands look to Christ. Christ looks to God. That's the New Testament hierarchy. So, all glory is always given to God through Jesus Christ in all we do. 1 Corinthians 30, uh, 10, 31 says, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Peter adds an addendum, through Christ Jesus. Meaning because of him, our mediator to the invisible God, through his victory over life and death and sin, we are able to have and live by the Spirit, which moves us to love in a way that God is honored through Christ. This hierarchy is difficult to understand and relate to sometimes. And as a result, many people, as a means to simplify matters, focus on one element of this. Okay, the LDS, having made Jesus their elder brother and diminish his capacity as the Savior and our perfect example, they tend to focus everything on Heavenly Father, God, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, with Jesus kind of being a sub, uh, subscription to that, below that a little bit. On the other end of the spectrum, we have sold out people for Jesus who make him the focal point of all things to the point that when they speak of God, it's Jesus. When they worship God, it's Jesus. When they pray to God, it's Jesus. When they, uh, 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 to the point that Yahweh, who is always referred to as Yahweh singular, in, except for four times in the Old Testament, is almost lost in the entire mix, to whom glory is rarely given, even though Peter and Paul always say the glory goes to the Father. So in my humble opinion, I tend to think that all these ideas are byproducts of faulty tradition-based teachings accepted by the LDS and by evangelicals at large. The subject's not easy to tease apart, but before we go to the phones, let's dip our toes in the water. Let me read a passage, John 17, 3. It's very simple. And this, Jesus said, is life eternal, that they might know thee, Jesus said it, the only true God, the only true Yahweh, and, and Jesus Christ, whom thou, the only true God, has sent. He lays it out. Jesus lays it out. This is life eternal. To know you, God, the Father, and his Son, both. Okay? What a passage. The Greek might know is gnoskin, and it's a present active subjunctive of the hyna meaning we have to keep on knowing. We have to keep on knowing and growing and understanding this living God, this true and living God and his son whom he sent. I would strongly, strongly suggest that when Jesus was speaking these words, he was not speaking to the limited ontological makeup of God. He wasn't talking about the physical, if we want to use the term physical, makeup of the only true and living God and Jesus who he sent, but he was talking about the epistemological makeup, how we know them through the heart. That's what he was talking about. Since God is eternal, to keep on knowing him might suggest a continual continuation in our relationship with him, continuing to grow and learn and, and letting our ideas sometimes morph and change 
as we understand different things about him. He is incomprehensible. So we can't think that we're going to arrive at a static definition and say, this is truth, adhere to it. We have to continue to grow as we uh, learn of him. Religiously minded men have long tried to take the words of Jesus in John 17 and force others to agree to an accepted standard on the ontological makeup of God. This is what he is. It looks like this and you must adhere to it. And many call that the Trinity. Some call it modalism. Others call it Unitarianism. But it, they all have their demands on what must be accepted regarding the physical makeup, the ontology of God. And I don't think Jesus was ever talking about that. Uh, he was talking about the epistemological knowing of him. So Mormons glom onto their unique henotheistic three gods and one purpose model, but the actual ontological knowledge of God is very, very difficult to perfectly find. And this may be why there are so many variations and differences among people who do know God epistemologically, who do know him from the heart, who do worship him in spirit and truth, but differ about him ontologically. So this ministry has always maintained that there are people who are his, saved Christians, who have very messed up ontological ideas about God, really jacked up ideas. But the spirit has taught them, at least where they are today, that who he is from the heart and how to relate to him in the spirit. And ontologically, they may, uh, they will ultimately come to understand. But I would zealously maintain that knowing Jesus and God epistemologically is everything to life eternal. That's everything. And uh, that he is the sole reason uh, that we enter into the presence of God, Jesus. No skipping around this biblical fact. So, one of the things, talking about thought-killing cliches people do to each other, is that when we differ with each other on the makeup of God, we will say, you worship a different Jesus. Um, don't we all, ontologically, like I said to David earlier, worship a different Jesus to some extent? I mean, we're all somewhat victims to uh, Roman Catholicism's paintings of Jesus in terms of what he looked like. They're all kind of counter to what Isaiah says, that he was like a dried reed and had nothing that men would desire of him, and he wasn't comely, and he wasn't handsome. He was not attractive. And yet, you know, we paint these strapping carpenter Jesus guys, long hair, they look like surfers, they're beautiful, and, and, and he was, I think he was rather probably very unattractive, you know. Uh, so we all, in a sense, are worshiping a false Jesus ontologically. And uh, we're probably going to be surprised when we see what he really was like. And if this is the case about worshiping someone who actually walked around in flesh, what do you think it means when it comes to worshiping the only true God who is invisible, who we cannot see? Do you actually think you understand who he is completely and that you can tell someone else they're wrong and you're right in your uh, ontological view of him? So... Uh, when you tell somebody you worship a different Jesus, it's very, it's full of hubris. And it is, um, it proudly plants a flag that says, I know the true Jesus and you don't. You don't know the true Jesus. And I'm not sure anyone can really, really say that uh, in all honesty. 
Now, admittedly, there's false Christs out there in the world when it comes to the ontology of God and it comes to the epistemology. And I would suggest we have to be very, very careful to avoid arrogance and presuppositional stances against those who seek God in spirit and in truth. So all that said, I do want to point something out before we go to John in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And that is this. In the first chapter of Genesis, we read, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Who was being referred to when he used the plural pronoun our and us? Does this imply that God is more than one? Does it indicate that Jesus preexisted uh, in the incarnation as the second person of the Trinity? Now, this isn't the only time that the plural pronoun for God is used in the Old Testament. It is used 789 times. That's not true. It's used 420 times. No. It's used 100 times. No. It's used 10 times. No. It's in three other places. The entire Old Testament uses the plural pronoun to describe God. Four times altogether. Genesis 1, which I just said, Genesis 3.22, God said, Behold, the man has become one of us to know good and evil, become one of us. At the building of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11.7, God said, Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. And finally, the last time, Isaiah 6.8, where God says, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? That's four times. All through the Old Testament, God is described thousands of times as one. Four times only do we have an us or an our. And those passages are used to justify the Trinity. I would want to ask, what do these four plural pronouns mean when they're applied to God? Who is the us he's speaking of and the our? Do these passages prove that there was Jesus then? I would suggest as we come to this topic next week to wrap it up, that they have no bearing at all on Jesus and Holy Spirit with the Father as a Trinity in the Old Testament. But they are entirely, they're speaking of an entirely different thing. I think I'll make a great case for it. And I think it will add another feather in the cap of saying, so why do we use those passages to support the idea of the Trinitarian God? Okay. Many people in Mormonism are coming to see this for the first time in their lives, and this is what's happening. They are coming out of Mormonism. They're coming out of being taught of the polytheistic God, and then they are stepping in to a, uh, another tradition of men that is foisted upon them, and they're trying to grab it, and then when it doesn't measure up to scrutiny after time, they are becoming absolute hardened atheists. And I meet them all the time, and that's what we're trying to avoid. At least opening up the discussion so that there's room to talk. Okay, uh, let's show a spot. We'll come back and talk to John in Tulsa.
All right, let's go to John. Tulsa. John. Yes, sir. You're on the air. I uh, thank you, John. Uh, I uh, I want to appreciate and thank you for letting me come back again this week. Uh, last week we talked about uh, the God of the Old Testament being a killer God and being killing babies and stuff. And I found a little more information. I want to keep it short, but uh, Philip, uh, I mean Stephen, before he was being stoned, he preached a sermon to in the book of Acts, and it's all of chapter 7, and I recommend people read this. Uh, he talks about the fathers of these uh, Jewish people at that time that killed him, and this was that, that Moses said a prophet would be raised up like him, and this was the prophet that was here now, and that they had killed him, him too, like they did the prophets that were sent to them in the Old Testament. And anyway, <clears throat> the, the main part of this chapter, he says that when the children of Israel uh, turned against God, and worship the golden calf. He says, Then God, this is chapter 7, verse 42 through 45, Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. And, O you house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices for the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Remphan, figures which ye made with your own hands to worship them. And I will carry you away into Babylon. Now, this is very interesting because it's what it's saying is the tabernacle that they received, the temple, the portable temple, they turned it into the tabernacle of Moloch, who was the god of the, the Nebuchadnezzar bunch that burned the children of Israel in the fire and then and that sacrificed their babies to later on. Yeah. So now... What this is basically saying, in my opinion here, and I could be wrong, but I don't think I am, but what it's saying is is that those laws that were given by a mediator, an angel, which they were wanting to worship God. They did it for 40 years, not just one time with a golden calf. They carried this tent with them for 40 years in the wilderness, worshiping this false god. Hmm. And I think God let them just let this false god, Moloch, give them those instructions in the Old Testament. And that's why those instructions are so violent, so mean, killing babies and all that stuff. This is a God, a destroyer. This is talking about a man or a God that is a destroyer. And if you'll read that whole chapter, and it not only says it there, it also says it in the book of Amos in chapter 5 about how he is sick of their sacrifices, the real God, is sick of their sacrifices, their calves and their bulls and their solemn assemblies and all of that. And 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 then you you had a, a gall basically to have have the tabernacle be the tabernacle of Moloch, their temple and mm -hmm. those ordinances and that is that that is to me is just horrendous. But anyway, uh, Jesus also told them that talking to the Jews about their fathers, how they killed the prophets in the Old Testament. He was also talking about the time uh, when uh, back in the days of Moses, and he said to them then that your father, the person they worshipped, these Jews at that time. Was was Lucifer or Satan basically was the devil, and that that they killed the prophets. So, before if a person is trying to make a decision on what God is really like, his heart, you better look at Jesus because we got twelve apostles who walked with him, talked with him, and bore their lives and their testimony. Stephen was stoned by the Jews for that little preaching ceremony he gave them that day. And thank you for letting me uh, present that to you. Thank you so much, John. Really appreciate it. Okay. God bless you, my brother. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Uh, I've taken some more heat for me being a deer in the headlights on that question when the caller said, what about God in, a, in the Old Testament killing babies and killing women and allowing slavery and everything else? And Because, you know, I used to think I knew the answers to stuff like that and, could, and I would really try to uh, speak them. And I don't know that I know them anymore. It's not that I've lost faith. I think that some great points are made. If Jesus came in the flesh and represented the invisible God and he was love and he was kind and he was generous, then to me that says we are misreading or misunderstanding the whole purpose of how God did things in the Old Testament. Because I, I would, if Jesus came and he was reflecting God and God was this heinous child killer, then Jesus would have been a heinous child killer. But I, I just don't see that. The other thing is someone brought to my attention uh, a few weeks ago is that God doesn't create, he didn't create death, that we all die. And because he expedites the death of children or women or slaves or whatever it is, if he expedites it, he's not, he's not creating or causing death. He's just having it occur quicker. And in the eternal spectrum of things, if he can see the end result is going to be good for taking people off this planet early or late, then we let him. And that's how I've always seen it. So that's why it's never been that big of a deal to me. And I don't mean to be callous, but I think when we look at God with it from our human eyes and from our human perspective, it's easy to say he's heinous. But I think if we look at the whole eternal spectrum of things, I think we see him as loving. And that's what I kind of said when we did the show. All right, uh, really quickly. Wait, we have Mike from England. Is this? Let's try it. Mike, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello, hi. It's all right, so I want to ask a question from England, if possible. Yes. Um, it's referenced, basically, one of the latest LDS essays, uh, Mother in Heaven. Oh. Okay. Um, just after your opinion on it and a bit of understanding, um, my personal concern is that it seems to always read Mother, not Mothers. Mm. Should it not be... Um, uh, plural, bear in mind uh, Joseph Smith's teachings and the fact he's married to multiple wives. Yeah, and Brigham Young, Brigham Young validated that it was mothers in heaven and always taught mothers in heaven. And I think it changed to the singular uh, probably after that period of time. Yeah, it just, just seems a little bit misleading that at the moment it sort of gives the impression of a mother and not actually the uh, real story. Yeah. So obviously they believe that they could have others. Yeah. But how does that, um, I'm going to put the phone down in a minute, but could you just explain um, how that relates to the Christian um, ontology of God? When well, you're going on about the ontology of God, could you just explain whether there is any sort of biblical passages or not, where, where the LDS get this, this from? You know, um, this is the interesting thing. I've heard people say that in Genesis when it says, uh, and God said, let the man leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. The question is, who was the father and mother the man Adam was going to leave? And they'll say, there is evidence that God has a wife, you see. But what they don't realize is Moses wrote in retrospect all that happened from Adam down to Moses. Moses is the one who wrote that. And so he was just saying, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. He wasn't speaking of Adam actually leaving his father and mother in heaven and clinging to Eve, his wife. There's one thing. The other one, Queen of Heaven is talked about. I think it's in Ezekiel. And Queen of Heaven is definitely a pagan personage in the Bible. Uh, Hebrews, the Hebrews 
believed that Elohim had both male and female uh, uh, parts to God. And that, I mean, God is sometimes called, uh, who is it? Uh, uh, I can't remember what the term is, but it's the many-breasted one. The br- many-breasted one. And uh, meaning that he, he's a provider of food to his children. And it's a very feminine title assigned to God in the Old Testament. So the Jews believe that God was both male and female in his attributes to a certain extent. And so that could have carried over into it. But there is absolutely nothing in Christian uh, uh, literature, especially the Bible or even church history of Christianity, where there's a mother in heaven. I think that is really probably the LDS are probably the only ones who think of it. That's great. It's okay. Thank you for answering that question. It's just we've got a few sons of still LDS, and it's nice to have the information to hand. So I uh, appreciate your help on that one. Thanks so much, my brother. We'll talk to you soon. Take care, bro. Bye-bye. Bye. We're going to Eric in uh, Washington. I guess it's state. Uh, Eric, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. Hi, Eric. Glad you did too. Oh, fantastic. Um, well, I watched a lot of your videos on YouTube, and um, I'm, of course, not trying to be offensive in any matter, but uh, I'm sure plenty will be offended in, on every side of the spectrum. Um, I, I uh, was once where you were at uh, as far as Mormonism, and then, of course, I left Mormonism for Christianity, and then as I continued to. I left Christianity for what people would think is Judaism, but of course it's not. And I would consider myself a Hebrew or an Israelite. And uh, the reason I did, and, and I encourage you to uh, investigate, because uh, you need knowledge, man, like Hosea 4 6. When you get into these Masoretic scribes from the 14th, 15th century, when you get into the 30,000 errors in the New King James Version, when you get into uh, the uh, New Covenant, so to speak, of Roman Catholicism, what happens is, as you learn the ancient language, like you have ancient Paleo-Hebrew, pictographical Hebrew, you realize at every step we are not being told the truth. In fact, when people say antichrist, they use the word anoma for the Greek, and what should have been put in there and was in there in the Qumran scrolls was the Torahless one that is to come. So if you have Torahless one, which is actually the, the correct wording, what, what does that mean if you're Torahless? Well, uh, Eric? Yeah. Yes, sir. You probably haven't uh, you probably haven't watched many of the current shows for the past couple years, but uh, I am convinced that when we look at the doctrine of sola scriptura, which was created by the founders of the Reformation, that that was a man-made idea, and I don't and I believe that the 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 word that we have is a gift. It is a gift to us to individually, that the Word of God divides soul and spirit in, of individuals. It doesn't divide the body. And we are to use that gift to increase our faith and our love and our understanding of the true and living God and His Son. But I don't believe in Epistemus Werba. I don't believe it's word perfect. I mean, in the original manuscripts, 
I don't think that that, that I think the Holy Spirit coming through the word is what teaches us. And I think the very fact that the New Testament was not available to anybody for the first 300 years uh, in parts and then for the first 1500 years as a whole before it was agreed upon, I just don't believe that we use that as a new law. I believe that it's the Holy Spirit that we read that book. And so I don't make a huge deal out of uh, the King James onlyists or any of that stuff or the fact that some words are different in this version versus that version or look at the Greek. I too, when I came from, I'm sorry, I'm being long-winded here, but when I came from Calvary Chapel and I came out of that, I was just like, this book is perfect. And it wasn't until I started teaching it every Sunday and I started to look at the original text and looked at the different translations that I could see that's not true. But we do have the Holy Spirit that brings Christ into our hearts. And I do think that you may be making a big mistake by becoming a Jew and, uh, and, and turning from the true and living, uh, the, the Son of God who He sent to save you. Well, and, and, and thank you for, you know, I'm, I want to have a dialogue here, is I haven't turned to a Jew. We get the word Jew, which is the letter J, came into existence around the 17th century. Because in Hebrew, there's no just sound, it's Yah. So we get that, that yeah. wording from the tribe of Yahudah. I, I'm a Hebrew, and I know the name of the, the Masi Yah, which means, of course, Yosha, Hamashiach, then Yahweh. What does Yosha's name mean? It means Yahweh, my father, saves. So what, what we're getting here in, in American Babylonian Christianity is more like Freemasonry. And so when you ask someone, are you a Christian? They say, yes. I said, you keep the Moed Mikra. They said, what the hell is that? <laughs> and I say, you, you got to study. Yosha fulfilled the first four feasts, but the additional have yet to come. So if Yosha means Yahosha, means Yahweh saves, I mean, that's a light bulb to go on your head. Um, Yosha was the diminished form of Yahweh. And when we say Holy Spirit, we get the word holy from the sun god Helios. So you're, when you say Holy Spirit, you're talking about a sun god. And when you get the spirit, we get the word, of course, uh, I'm losing Ruach it. Kodesh, set apart spirit. So Yosha, when he met with Nicodemus, he, Nicodemus said, how can a man be born again? It's basically from the context, if you read the real uh, ancient language was he wanted to slap it. It was not a nice conversation. He's like, you're the great teacher of the, the, the Hebrews, but you don't understand the basics of my father's Torah. What I think is that, and, and, and I mean, it's through tons of studies, we have the Catholic Church coming in and rolling over and putting this New Testament, or you could say you had, what's his name there from the Reformation do it, but it, it, we, there is no New Testament. There is one to come. Hmm. And then one to come is when the Torah, which means teaching, not law, wrong word they put in there again, is going to be written inside of us. That's true. Yeah. I think that's happened. Well, I, not yet. It happens. Now, see, this is heavy, and I, I'm so glad you gave me some time. When it gives you dates and times in the Torah, but the Masoretes took them out. They said, oh, no, no man knoweth the day nor time nor hour. 
No, 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 no. That's not true. Uh, if you know the Hebrew calendar, Yosha, uh, Yahweh gives his feast dates. He gives the beginning of the tribulation. He gives the return of Yahweh. And you're going to be like, no, 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 there's no dates. And I expect for you to say that. That's what I just said 10 years ago. And you know what he says when the return of Yahweh is? When? It's the, the feast of Yom Kippur, 2033, October 2nd. It's my birthday. Yeah. Of course it would be then. Wow. <laughs> hey, listen, Eric, we are out of time. This sounds like a conversation that we need to have over a beer, a bottle of vodka. I'm just kidding. But it does sound like a long conversation that we need to have sitting down and talking, and maybe we can do that sometime. If they would pass your number on, I'm a wealthy foreign currency trader. I'd love to have you up to my home. Thanks so much, my brother. We'll talk to you again. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. We'll continue on talking about the ontology of God, and I, will, I think I can uh, prove, make a good argument for what the plural pronouns are, the four of them in the Old Testament, and what they mean relative to the makeup of God, and we'll continue on talking about the Mormon and Christian side next week on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake, a storm's arising the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light-filled monkeys start